Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. The first four episodes this year will feature four men, three artists and one collector who were all previously incarcerated. I want to acknowledge these men for the ambition and drive and the ability to persevere despite their unfortunate situations. In this episode, I feature abstract conceptual artist Jared Owens. He taught himself how to paint in a cell at a federal prison. His professors were art critics, encyclopedias, art magazines, and other prisoners. He would sit for hours studying images of art. He wanted to know how pieces were made, what and where the materials came from. Most importantly, he wanted to know about the artists that made them, the circumstances they produced their art in, the political climate, and whatever he thought may have influenced the content and execution of their work. His first collectors were other inmates who were interested in paintings of their family members, so his initial work was portraiture, as well as some ceramics. He eventually began to focus on abstract expressionism and was influenced by paintings by Caravaggio, Francis Bacon, Jackson Pollock, and even Thornton Dial, among others. His work is featured in a book titled Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, authored by Nicole Fleetwood. She spent nine years researching the inner lives and creative visions of incarcerated men and women and further examines the severe injustices of the criminal justice system while sharing the fact that America's prisons are filled with art. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Enjoy this episode featuring Jared Owens. Jared, happy holidays. It's great having you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays to you also. Thank you. Yeah, we, we made it through the snow, huh? <laughs> yes, we did. As we've been doing since we were kids. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It's great not to have to shovel any snow. So let's dive on in. You know, there are a couple really important things I want to talk about today. Uh, in addition to you being an artist, I want to make sure we speak about Nicole Fleetwood's book. Mm-hmm. But before we go there, let's just start off with you sharing with listeners when you first discovered um, that you are an innately an artist. Probably when I was a child, I was always a doodler. I always fiddled. I always, I was always uh, drawing on you know pieces of paper. And uh, my mother actually has my first abstract piece, and she had it hanging in a laundry room for years and years and years and years. The first piece that I ever did, and I always look at it, I'm like, wow, I was doing this since I was like five years old. And um, yeah, I was always interested in art. I always gravitated towards art classes and I was always 
doing doodles. I was always fiddling with paper and pens and paper and magic marks, whatever I can get my hands on, since I can remember. And, and did she encourage you? Hey, my mom, she kind of did. It was a it was a different time back then. I don't. There wasn't really time to encourage uh, because just the way the world was, where where I grew up in Rockland County, it was just uh, there was no time to encourage. It was just it was a tumultuous. Uh, what do I want to say? Time in in elementary school for me when I was a kid. But I mean that's another story. But it would I didn't really get a time to uh, to nurse it, so to speak. And, and when did you get an opportunity to nurse it? Uh, when I was in federal prison, and I mean interspersed between then, a couple of times I, I painted and dabbled with it, and then just didn't go anywhere with it, got distracted. And then when I was in federal prison, one day I just decided, you know, I'm going to take this serious. And said, so it doesn't, I can't uh, get in trouble anymore. You know, I've exhausted all of my felonies. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to be an artist, or I'm going to spend the rest of my life here, and I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. So I said, I'm just, this is what I'm going to concentrate on. <laughs> And, and do you recall art being a ther- therapy for you? Well, it was. When, it, when I first realized how big the art world was and there were, you know, just the backstories of all the artists, all the things that they worked through, you know. Picasso and Matisse were doing art while there were bombs going off around them. So I said, you know what, if, if they were in that situation still painting, I said, I'm in a prison, I've got a cell, and I could, you know, I've got access to limited amounts of material. So I said, I'm going to avail myself of this opportunity to just create. And that's what I did. So it was therapeutic in that it kept, it, you know, it kept my mind away from all the craziness that was going on around me, for sure. And were there others that were also exploring painting as a, an escape? Oh, yeah. We had um, we had classically trained painters, <laughs> believe it or not, in federal prison. They were just masters. We had guys that were photorealistic painters um, inside federal prison where I was. They were, into this, they were all over the federal system, but I was lucky that I had two of them to learn from. Uh, one was a classically trained painter. He went to school. The other one just taught himself. And I mean, he was like portrait, like a master portrait guy, like just never seen anything like it. And he was the main person that I learned from. Mm-hmm. And what type of work were you creating while you were there? Well, at first I didn't start painting, interestingly enough. What happened was they had a ceramic program in the prison that I was incarcerated in. And I looked in there one day and I saw these guys doing ceramics. And I was just like, it, it, it reminded me of my junior high school, excuse me, my elementary school teacher, Mr. Rusta, rest in peace. And I loved her class and I loved her. And all my first ceramic pieces were made in her class and that was my favorite class and it was it was a great place for me to escape to and I always looked forward to it and I forgot all about that you know it was over 20 years ago and then when I was inside the prison for the first five years I used to walk past the ceramic room and then one day I just looked in there and I said you know what I said let me, let me get in here and I, and I thought about her and it's just the little bit of time that I spent with her in elementary school it left the imprint on me that I you know that made me go back into the ceramic program and uh basically i started with ceramics um after i had pretty much exhausted everything i could do with the ceramic program and there became a teacher became a mentor um there was nothing left to do. I, it was just now i need to start painting you know i started studying painting and other guys were painting and they, they just weren't doing it right i could tell there was something missing so i started studying the uh what makes a painting 
basically pretty much. And then I, you know, I got blessed. Uh, like I told you before, I had two guys come in that were, one was classically trained and the other one was uh, just an amazing uh, photorealist painter. So I learned the basically color theory, uh, you know, the spatial elements inside of a, a rectangle or a square in the picture plane, things of that nature. I learned from those guys. And then I just kind of picked it up and I ran with it after them. I knew I didn't want to be do what they did and they encouraged me not to do what they did. And, <laughs> I, and I realized why it was just like, I'm, illustration totally bores me. I don't like, I don't, I'm not the type of guy who's going to like uh, underpaint eyeballs and the head and then go back and color everything. in. like, I just, that's not me. Like I just, and I just, I can't do it. It's so simple now that I know how to do it, that I, I just refuse to do it. But I thought you did paint portraits. I painted portraits in prison because luckily I picked it up very fast and it was a quick way to earn a buck to put back into ceramics, to put back into buying uh, more books on art, to learn about art history, to get magazine subscriptions, just to keep studying. And I did them um, because I was just, I was good at them and I was fast and I just, I could knock them out. Like they were, it just came naturally to me. And I just, it was just something that I did to say, to get it under the belt and like kind of pay my dues um, I knew in the back of my head, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no future in being a portrait artist out here, you know, unless you're, unless you're going to put a twist on it. And I had no intentions of being, uh, Mr. Wiley or any, any of those other guys, you know, they've kind of got that sewed up. So I said, I, you know, unless I'm going to do something different, it doesn't make any sense for me to, uh, to even go into that genre of art creation. So and for me, it was just like, they, they became like puzzles, you know, I just wanted to learn how to the values, the, the tones, the tonalities, and then the, you know the color relationships, things like that. I was I was looking at it more from a scientific viewpoint than you know de- deriving any joy. You know when I would finish one, I would just laugh at guys. They'd be so amazed. Oh my God, it looks so real! And and it was something I learned how to do in a year. And I was just like, wow, I learned how to do this in a year. And people are impressed by it. I was like, I got to switch gears, and that's basically what I did. So you switched to abstraction. Yeah, I switched to abstraction like probably about a year. It wasn't even a switch because I was always doing abstraction, always studying it, you know. And I, you know, I went from the beginning, who was who the first abstractionist, and then I went through the whole history, you know, from Kandinsky to I mean everybody. I studied every every single person, Gorky, you know, all the greats, the Crooning, you know, Black Mountain, everything, just the history of it. Who, you know, where did it begin? Who who did this? Who did that? And that's where I, you know, I realized that uh, it's a, you know, it was a deep, 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 rich canon of, uh, of things that had already been done. Mm-hmm. What, what artist would you say influenced you the most? Oof. Matisse for his color and the fact that he was interested in the life of just objects. Um, as far as abstraction, ah, man, I love, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, I love Clifford Still. Clifford, I love Clifford Still. Um, the Cooning, of course. Joan Mitchell. I mean, really. I mean, Pollock, yeah, a little bit something. Yeah, I like some Pollocks. I like the Pollocks that other people don't like. I like the uh, I like the Rothkos that other people, the ones he did before he started doing the color fields. I like Helen Frankenthal. I mean, all of them influential to me. I mean, uh, I like artists a lot of people haven't heard of. Like, I like Irving Petlin, 
you know, he's got a couple of paintings that I like that are really strange and like uh, psychologically mysterious. Because there's so many. I'm so there's so many. I love everybody. You know, everybody has a favorite painting of mine. Let's put it that. Yeah. So, what do you enjoy most about being an artist? Um, it's it's an unregulated market like selling drugs, <laughs> which I was I was involved <laughs> with for half my life. There's no there's nobody there's no sanctioning body. There's nobody for me to answer to. You know, I could paint till five o'clock in the morning, wake up in the afternoon, paint again. I have nobody to answer to. Mm-hmm. And that's my main thing. I don't want to, I just want to do what I want to do. I don't want anyone to tell me, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I love that it's unregulated and that there is no blueprint for it. There is just, I love the freedom of being, of just my expression, just being able to flourish. And I don't have really to worry about all. Um, someone telling me what I can or cannot do. Mm-hmm. do. Do you ever think about your audience while you're creating work? No, they don't exist at all mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it, you'll never hear me say creating my work. It's always, for me, it's always going to be the work. I am nothing but an antenna. I don't ever see anything. I, I look at, I try to look at the, the, the pieces that come off as if I had nothing to do with their creation. I want to see them and then be like, damn, did I do that? Or, did, you know, did, like, how did that come about? Like, I don't, you know, I never know when I'm painting or creating, I'm, you know, I'm in a fugue state. Like, I can't remember what I'm doing really pretty much. I just, uh, I just go. It's just weird. I can't really, I guess everybody's different. But for me, it's, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I could paint for hours with silence. Sometimes I paint with music. Um, but I'm just an antenna. I don't see my, I don't see too much of me. Really, there's not much of me inside the art um, itself. I'm just like an antenna and I'm just transmitting with my physical body, you know, through my hands, through my arms, through motion, through my eyes, what, what the universe is saying. It's almost like the pieces already exist, like they're already done. I'm just pulling them out of the ether and putting them, you know, on the canvas. That's what I like to go for. I don't like, uh, I like happenstance in the work. I don't like, uh, I don't like, I, just like illustration, you know, illustration so predictive. It's just like, okay, color it, this guy. I like, uh, I like happenstance in the work and I, I like to not know what I'm going to do next. I kind of just like, I kind of appear in front of the, you know, blank space and I say, okay, uh, I guess I'm going to do this. You know, I just, I don't try to steer too much or, or put any of me into anything that I supposedly do. Interesting. So I recently saw one of your works called The Corner Cell and mm-hmm. it said that you used debris from the prison yard the Federal Correction Institution. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the background, just a side note, I usually cannot stand anything that I create. I always pick it apart and I'm very critical about pieces that I make, but uh, that's one of the pieces that I love. That piece is actually an art form also. That piece right there has the soil from inside the prison yard at FCI Ferriton where I was incarcerated. Uh, it was suggested to me by... Jesse Crimes, who's also in the exhibition with me at PS1. We've done a bunch of exhibitions together. Um, you know, I watched him make a pop routine. I was the one who helped uh, sneak it out of the federal prison, showed him how to sneak it out of the prison. Um, and uh, he's, you know, he started explaining to me, you know, the importance of materials and things that I already uh, investigated and studied. And, you know, I had side notes in my head about materiality and things like that. Have another consideration when somebody's viewing the work. So because of him, I have sent maybe 
20 pounds of soil from inside the prison uh, home. So, you know, I would send it home. My mother would be like, why are you sending dirt home? I'd be like, I'd be like Ma. I'd say, Ma, that's gold right there. You don't understand. She'd be like, whatever. So I have jars and jars and jars of it. And even the symbolic nature of sprinkling it on a painting and hearing it, then I'll do that because it, it adds a, a layer of depth to the viewer's consideration of, you know, the impossibility of taking of raw material from a place that's supposedly secure and then sticking it on a canvas is just another layer of depth that I wanted to add to it. So a lot of my works, I think every work, every work in uh, PS1 has soil from Ferritin in it. And there's a sort, some of them, some other works that I have, uh, I actually have one at the Philadelphia, at the African-American Museum in Philadelphia that has, that's, has it caked on there. And I'm working on some pieces right now where it's going to be like, you're really, really going to see it. It's going to be all over. It's, 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 you're going to know that it's soil automatically. And, and I also, you know, I was interested in the beginning. Picasso painted with sand. Uh, Jackson Pollock did, you know, when he was studying in the Indian paintings that he was looking at the uh, sand. Sand paintings, things of that nature. A lot of abstract expressionists used, uh, you know, uh, sand inside their paintings. So... It's a, it's, it's, it's kind of like a throwback to a long tradition of adding other material elements into the picture plane. And it's kind of a conversation that I'm having about that to anybody who's, who knows art history. It's kind of, they'll say, oh, this artist did that, that, and I'm kind of like continuing that because I see that a lot of that's gone away. So I want to keep it alive. So on the topic of PS1, mm-hmm. let's talk about Dr. Nicole Fleetwood's book. Mm-hmm. Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, mm-hmm. which highlights more than 35 artists. So what was it like working with her and PS1 and the other artists? Well, she's incredible. I mean, before PS1, um, you know, the first exhibition I did with her was at uh, the Zimmerle Museum in, uh, at uh, Rutgers University in New Brunswick, where she was uh, a teacher at the time. And... Um, that's when I first met her and I, and you know, she expressed to me that, you know, one day this is going to be a book. And this is like seven years ago. And you know, when you meet somebody and they say, Hey, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing, you're like, okay, show me whatever. And, but with her, everything she said she was going to do, she has, you know, brought to life. So it was really, it was amazing just to, to go through the whole thing with her to answer the emails and her asking me questions. And then, you know, like the same way we're having this talk right now, I've done this with her numerous times in person and on Zoom, because I consider her my friend also, other than our professional relationship, which is uh, I'm the subject and she's the actual, you know, the person who's reporting on the subject matter. And then, you know, she's in my inner circle of just artistic friends. So the collective is me, Jesse, and uh, Gilberto Rivera, just from Ferriton. And then, you know, you have like a side collective, which is uh, Mary Baxter, uh, uh, James Ho, and you have... Uh, Russell Craig, who they were incarcerated together. So it's like we form this, this core contingent inside the book um, and in real life. So we're, you know, we want to see her succeed for sure. She's amazing. She asks all the greatest, her questions are so in-depth and they're, and they're really relevant to the moment. And uh, yeah, she's been doing this for a long, long time. And I mean, PS1 to take the exhibition, you know, hats off to them when so many other institutions in New York were just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, they underestimated probably, you know, they didn't uh, see any value in what she was doing and they didn't, they just weren't 
hip to the moment that's happening right now. And, you know, PS1 was, and it was a perfect fit, you know, considering the history of PS1. PS1 has always been like a firebrand in the art world. I mean, you can look at PS1's history going way back into, you know, back in time. And they were just, it was always, it always, it's been that forever, forever, ever. So PS1 is a perfect fit for what she's doing. And it's just, you know, it, it, I'm so glad that the exhibition was held there to, to uh, highlight what PS1 has always been and who they've always shown there. So it's just a blessing all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, the work that she's done. Mm-hmm. So do people try to categorize you guys? Yeah, do they try to put you in a box? Do collectors, you know, art enthusiasts? I think the, uh, I think the expression of who we are is still nascent in the mind of the collectors, they don't, they are still, <laughs> we're like a penny stock right now to me, is the best way to probably put a it. A penny they're stock? Like, like, we're like a penny stock to I me. love it. You know, like, yeah, so like, even like, even like a cryptocurrency, like XRP, XRPs are like 60 cents, you know, like for instance, I bought XRP when it was 20 something cents. So, you know, it's, there's going to be speculative analysis on who we are, what we do. There's going to be people who want to, buy low and sell high. There's going to be people who underestimate us. And I understand that, you know, collectors, I haven't ever, ever spoken verbally to a collector. I can only surmise um, or uh, assume what they think. If I was a collector, I'd probably be thinking the same thing that they are. Uh, I'd say, who are these guys? Where do they come from? You know, what are they doing? And you know how the art world is. They want affirmation that who they're buying or collecting is okay with them by somebody who's intelligent that knows, you know, like, and it could be the worst shit in the world. And they don't care as long as X and X person they respect in the art world tells them, Hey, you need to be buying this. They'll buy it. They don't, you know, they, they don't, some of them don't care about backstory collectors. I've always wanted the collector who gets what I'm saying and wants to be like a part of my art so-called career and is interested in seeing, you know, like, uh, I'll buy this piece. I want to see what you're doing with two years from now, three years from now, you know, like those are the collectors that I'm interested in. Um, I know there's collectors out there who just want to buy a piece and put it in their basement in one of their high rises or in Connecticut or, you know, wherever in the suburbs, and then they want to forget about it. And then they want to come back 10 years later, be like, Hey, look what I got. And that's, I understand it. It's cool. Um, um, I, I don't think about them when I'm making my art. They're not, they don't come into consideration with me, basically. I mean, we all have to eat, got to make money. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, the valuation of the pieces is, 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 is a thing that's created by the art, by them. When you say they, it's they. It's the, always who's they. It's always they say. So they say controls the art world. Like they're the same mysterious people who, that we've created in our mind's eye as people who have power to, to, to uh, relegate authority on what is and what is good, what isn't good art, you know? And this just, it's an unregulated market, I get it. This is what they're in, but I have to steamroll over all of that and just keep making good pieces. And really the only audience that I make pieces for are my constituency, which is the collective, which is like Jesse, you know? I, you know, we throw, I throw pieces in front of him and he's an art critic. He tells me what he's doing. I, you know, I come, I give him feedback. Sometimes I'll do a painting and I'll give it to Yaya, 
uh, you know, who's a master illustrator, and he'll be like, nah, that's not good. And and it'd be like, do this. And I do the same thing with Craig, and we throw pieces back and forth each other. So we have a wealth of knowledge between us. And we all know about materials, and these are the people that I look to uh, for validation that what I'm doing is relevant. Are you aware of any of your peers that decided to go to school to get a degree or a master's? Um, well, right now, Russell Craig is actually in Bard College. Um, he is going to get a degree. He'll probably have his first degree in the beginning of the year. Me personally, I am not, I don't believe in school. I don't believe in being taught. I believe, like I told you in happenstance, I don't think there's anything that I, anyone can teach me that I can't learn on my own. I'd rather make mistakes and figure it out because I want, I'd like that to be inside the art. I think it's better when the art is wrong and then you correct it and then you get criticized for it and then you correct it you know correct it like that as far as art history i mean i don't need school for art history i've got got an ipad in my hand i've got books i've got a library i've got a whole library of books to read from so any movements in the art world any collectives in the art world i'm aware of them i've studied them you know i could tell you what they eat for lunch how they like their coffee like i go in so (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm probably you know I could talk about art with anybody, art historian, uh, collectors, uh, whoever. We we could have these conversations for days and days and days and days. Probably they would think that I I went to school because, you know, while they were out here living in the world and having fun and doing what they do, I was in prison, you know, reading book after book after book, studying. That's all we did was study and make art. So my art college was inside prison and it was self-imposed. It wasn't a thing that, you know, I went to classes and I had to get graded or tested. I, it was just me constantly, constantly immersing myself in this whole artistic existence. So that's where my education comes from. So you've redefined self-taught. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> yes, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so nerdy. I, you know, I like, like the cool things about art, like Indian yellows made from the urine of cows that ate mango leaves. Like the dye, like I didn't like I love stuff like that. I love to know where cadmium comes from, you know. And then the different like I'll buy tubes of paint just to see which one, you know, how they perform. Like I like all of the the, uh, the little details that probably don't matter to people, but I want to know, you know. I just I like to know all of those stupid little things. What pigments are made out of? Um, how they make handmade paper, canvas throughout the ages, you know. How do they get linen? How do they source materials? Those are the things that I studied. The, 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 Things that are important to me, maybe they're not important to other people, but um, those are the things that I wanted to know and I educated myself on. What do you feel is the purpose of art? Oh, hmm. <sighs> to be like a newspaper. It should be. Uh, it should be. It should be current events. You know, the art art should be current events, and if it's not current events, it should tie history into the present, contemporary. Uh, conversation that's taking place. I don't, I, I don't really, I mean, it's artists everywhere. How could you escape it? Your clothes are made by an artist. The building you're looking at is made by artists. Half the furniture that you're sitting on, looking at in the rooms, it, it surrounds you. The shit's everywhere. You can't, you can't even escape it. I mean, everything, you know, people take it for granted. Even, you know, cars are made by artists, you know. Um, engineers are artists to me. You, how do you, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. It's like literally. Yeah. So another question is, how do you define black art? Here's the thing. They're always going to try. That's another pigeonhole. 
right? <laughs> so this is the this this is the pigeonhole conundrum, right? Our world supposes that they're going to give me a leg up if I'm black, homosexual, and making good work, right? So that right there just puts me in another bracket in the armor, and. Now, I'm, not, I'm none of those things. And I have nothing against artists who, who use that to get where they are. You know, more power to you. Whatever you got to do to eat, you do. Um, you, them trying to make me an African-American, so-called African-American artist um, in the art world who's been good, that so happened to be incarcerated, right? They're going to try to put me in that box. And I get it. So they're going to, you know, it's African-American um, artist that's that's been incarcerated and is now making socially relevant work that's talking about what's going on right now in the contemporary uh, conversation that we're having about uh, uh, just restructuring the way the mind side of the European colonial powers see black people in the art world. They've always marginalized uh, black people in the art world. They always want to pigeonhole us and put us in these little boxes because it suits them. They don't, regardless of what the work looks like, you know, they want to, they, they, they still are struggling to figure out what to do with us as if they have the power. And they do to some degree. But I've never been the person who you can pigeonhole. And if you try to pigeonhole me, I'm going to go around another route. Like, I might design a fucking building tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm all over the place. Like, I write poetry. I, I do whatever comes to my mind that I think I want to do, I'm going to try to do. So pigeonholing me and trying to call me an Af so-called African-American artist is, uh, is a waste of their time. Um, it's, <laughs> I mean they might not even see me as dark enough. And you have to remember that I'm a mixed race, so they might even not even put me in that box. They might decide to put me in another box, so they can't make me Latino or Lat whatever Latinx. So maybe I'm, in, I'm creating a whole genre of a mixed race, uh, <laughs> ex-incarcerated artists. I don't know how they're gonna, I don't know how they're gonna pigeonhole me. It's, it's probably gonna be really, really hard for them. I know they're gonna wanna, you know, human nature is to try to categorize everything and stick it in a place so that you can identify it so you know how to deal with it. The dumbest shit you can possibly do is to do that with me because I don't even know what I'm gonna to do tomorrow. I have, I, 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 I worship chaos, you know, so I love chaos and all, I love chaos and everything. So it's, uh, you know, if you pigeonhole me, I'm gonna feel it and I'm gonna go another direction, you know, I mean, it's just what I do. I don't want to be in, you know, it's cool to be pigeonholed to a certain degree, you know, pigeonholed into an area where uh, you could, you know, put me in a genre. And, you know, they always want to put you in a genre, R&B, rock, and, 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 and rightfully so. But I think with art, art is so fluid that uh, trying to do that with anybody is like, because, you know, it's, it's, it's the backstory that creates the artist and gives the artist the individuality. So I would just hope that they would go with my backstory and not try to say, oh, African-American artists, you know, like you and I both know right now, these boards are bending over backwards to uh, inject diversity into them right now. They're hiring headhunters. They want, you know, they want black, 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 black. So they could be seen as being diversified so that they can see, be seen as, you know, pro-Black Lives Matter, whatever the case may be. That's what they're doing right now. So they're kind of tokenizing 
the so-called African-American artists is being tokenized right now. And I don't want to be tokenized. I don't want to be lumped in together with, there's a black artist who's doing this because, I mean, if they want to do that, black artists are making firework right now. Just crazy work that really, uh, you know, it, I don't see, there's not too many other artists I see, right? I mean, the conversation is about them right now, us, whatever, you know, and uh, it's, there's no way to get out of that conversation. It's just that when you're ignored for so long, uh, and then you start making noise. This is a moment right now in art history that art history needs to grab onto. You know, like for the next 10, 20 years, it is what it is. And you know, there's no denying it because there's so many really, really great black artists that you can, you know, and that's not to take anything away from the great white artists that there are, but there's always been great white artists and they've always been held up, you know, uh, in the spotlight. So now, so-called African-American artists being held up in the spotlight in the art world and collectors and they're all trying to, you know, figure out, you know, oh my God, do I need to grab this? A lot of them are still, you know, they're still, they still consider that the person's black that made the art, you know, fuck whether or not the art is good or not. They put that into their considerations. That's how backwards they are and how miseducated they are. They'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to buy this because it's safe. You know, the backstory of this artist is safe you know, for them to buy it. And, you know, PS1 goes through that a lot. A lot of people come through there and they're not even looking at the art. They're wondering about the background of the person who made it. You know, that's how sick they are. They, they're so crazy. They're like, is it okay to like this? Even though I like the image? Like, they're asking themselves this question. But if you go into, if they delved into the background, some of the artists, they hold in such high regard. I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, everybody's got, uh, you know, jaded and checkered past for sure. You know, so um, that's, as always, with black people are being held to a higher degree of scrutiny by the colonial powers that be, you know, and there's no way around that. Yeah, some things either never change or take forever to change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and on that note, this has been a great conversation. It's been an interesting conversation. So our, f our final question is, what do you feel your role is as an artist? Just to be a great antenna, nothing more. Just to be a great antenna and to transmit uh, all the stimulus that I'm getting from society, from culture, from uh, just from the world in general. That's what my job is, that's it. I can't really, uh, I can't do anything other than that because that's, that's what composes who I am as an artist. Um, that's just my job. It's just what I chose to do. And I'm just going to go with it. You know, I have to ignore all the other noise that's going on in the art world of who they assume I'm supposed to be or who I am and just be me, you know, and just steamroll over all of this, over what they think my career should look like or what I'm supposed to do as an artist, because that's constructs that uh, they're inventing in their minds. Their constructs do not define me. My constructs define me. And I, that's basically all I can do is just make these constructs and then and, and just put them in the, in the physical world. That's it. Keep creating. Yes. Keep creating. <laughs> and thank you. I love your creations. I would like to thank see you. some of your ceramics. So. Um. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll send, I'll, I'll send some to you for sure. Okay, good, good, good. So thank you so much. I'm, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yes, yes, anytime. And uh, feel free to reach out whenever. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.